0: Cannabis is retaking America. It used to be the most relied on tincture in every home until it was demonized in the early 1900s, but now it's back. Even more states will legalize cannabis this November. There's enough momentum now between business activists and patient activists that the door on cannabis will simply not close again. Patients everywhere are getting relief from using different forms of the cannabis plant, and entrepreneurs smell opportunity. And many, including myself, are excited to build an industry from scratch. You are listening to the first episode of the Shaping Fire podcast. I am your host, Shango Lose. Shaping Fire will focus on innovations in the cannabis sphere, including both business disruptions as well as new research into cannabis and health. I offer you access to cannabis industry luminaries talking frankly about cannabis in ways you will not find elsewhere. If you have followed me from Godrepreneur.com, I appreciate that. If you have not heard the 54 episodes of the podcast I founded for Gontrepreneur.com, you should definitely check those out. There is an exceptional amount of smart analysis in those interviews from the top minds in cannabis. But, you know, I wanted to go out on my own, so here we are. Please subscribe to Shaping Fire. Tell your friends about the show. Set a trend. Today, my guest is Dr. Dominic Corva. Dominic Corva is the founder and social science research director of the Center for the Study of Cannabis and Social Policy, known more commonly as CASP. He was most recently visiting assistant professor in public policy at Sarah Lawrence College, and he continues to be an affiliate researcher at the Humboldt Institute for Interdisciplinary Marijuana Research at Humboldt State University in Arcata, California. His work has been published in the International Journal of Drug Policy, Political Geography, the Annals of the Association of American Geographers, and ACME, a Journal of Radical Geography. His dissertation research examined the political economy of international drug policy in the Western Hemisphere, and his postdoctoral research has focused on the political economy of cannabis agriculture in southern Humboldt County. Today, he's here to talk with me about cannabis policy transfer. So welcome to the show, Dominant. I'm glad you could join us. Thank you, Shango. Glad to be here. So, Dominic, when Colorado and Washington first began to write rules for cannabis sales, you know, they had never done this before. Some of the approaches worked well, while many of them very much did not. So now we're at the point that Alaska and Oregon are in rulemaking, and there looks to be maybe six more states in play to begin uh, licensing cannabis sales after the November vote. Do the new states appear to be learning from the best and worst practices of Washington and Colorado?
1: A little bit, but not in a particularly formal or organized way. Hmm. Uh, I think that uh, the news cycle is probably driving a lot of attention to things such as uh, pesticide regulation, which is a big oversight, I think, uh, early on in our process. Uh, and that's one good example. So the other states get to start where we are right now instead of taking four years to come around to you know the fact that this is of some concern for uh, public health and safety. You know, I think that's a really good point,
0: point that you make that um, the, the, the media role the, that they play in policy transfer between the states. Um, to what degree do the other states regulators find out what's going on in a target state by just reading the news versus talking to the regulators in states that,
1: um, you know, directly by getting on the phone and calling them? You know, I actually don't think it's all that organized. I've been paying pretty close attention. And as you know, I kind of brought up this possibility of bad policy transfer between Washington and Oregon, maybe even maybe a year ago when Oregon seemed to be, uh, you know, moving towards a, a more of a strict approach. Uh, but, you know, in the subsequent year, Oregon's also kind of backed off and fixed some things. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, it, it really depends on how organized and where the industry is in terms of uh, their conversations with their lobbyists and their legislators, I think it depends on uh, the conversations between industries in different states. There's plenty of people who are developing brands in different states. They have experience with uh, you know, policy in one state. And I, I actually probably think that it's through you know, lobbyists that a lot of policy transfer possibilities open up.
0: Hmm, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So what you're suggesting is that the um, the lobbyists are actually doing the homework for the regulators and going to other states and figuring out what the best way to go is, and then bringing that to the legislators.
1: Yeah, I believe that's the case uh, mm-hmm. for the most part. Uh, certainly, there's some cross border interaction. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not that familiar with you know the personal lives of politicians in different states, but. For the most part, these people, when they when they're outside the state, they're probably discussing national issues, and there's a lot of those besides cannabis. Uh, I think that's also in the case of Washington. You know, most of our legislature just was so sick of it anyway; they <laughs> they don't really uh, care to chat too much. Um, so, uh, you know, there's there's not a lot of sort of formally organized caucuses, for example, that are regional caucuses where you know. Uh, members of different political parties but around the same issue get together and uh, try to coordinate I think that will come and certainly the case of California since it's like about 25 other states you know all in one uh, you know you're going to see a lot more of that uh, on a sort of interstate level that still has to happen actually it has to happen not just between states but between jurisdictions. Uh, so many jurisdictions you know are still they haven't even learned the lessons from uh, other jurisdictions of their own state yet
0: Yes, yeah, well, I'm seeing that all the time, and you know, it's really frustrating too to realize how you know they say you don't want to you don't want to see the sausage being made, and it's and it's really astonishing, you know, at each state you've got you've got them making regulatory attempts at the state level, which then get kind of remixed at the county level, and you've got people you know passing moratoriums or changing changing zoning laws, and so that's happening at each state, and then and then the, so the states are talking to each other either via lobbyists or the media or, you know, political visits. And some of that gets transferred and some of it's not. And then and then the different groups, you know, uh, concerned parents or investors, these, these different groups have different amounts of power at these different states. It's, it's really a pretty chaotic mess. And it's kind of frustrating to see something that we all care about as much as cannabis to be handled this way. But it's also... It's also a primer in,
1: in how a government
0: actually works.
1: That's true. That's true. Especially, uh, you know, government by initiative, I would say. You know, uh, the citizens' initiatives have been how cannabis policy has been changed, which means we've been sort of leading them by the nose, you know, to uh, come along and do this. Now, I would say that I, it probably will get a little more organized around uh, uh, revenue policies. I think that uh, that's something that, that uh, politicians are particularly interested in, and that, that, that's how they view uh, you know, cannabis as a, you know, a new cow to milk. And I think that uh, it's far more likely that we will see a little more um, uh, you know, harmonization, let's say, of tax rates uh, as that information will be sought out by local and state policymakers. For for those of
0: us who don't have a lot of experience uh, talking about policy or thinking about policy, I'd love to flesh out a little bit. You said, you know, well, this is what you get when you legislate by initiative. And I'm assuming, you know, you're comparing legislating by initiative versus, um, you know, law passing by the state Congress. Can you you kind of describe the difference and and why you kind of gave that, that nod to the challenges of
1: initiatives? Sure. Initiatives push the legislature's, to do something that they clearly weren't going to do—that's their whole point. Uh, legislators, because if they were going to do it, they would simply, you know, rewrite laws or write new laws. So this is a, you know, a, a democratic mechanism essentially for uh, going around, let's say, the um, the inertia, I guess, of uh, policy agendas in a. More sort of conservative and fixed and static environment in any state in any jurisdiction, you have a set of concerns which reflect the people who are already politically and economically included in the state. So an initiative usually takes people who are not already politically and economically included and gets their message to policymakers and forces their hand. Uh, and certainly, you can see in you know the Washington State initiative process. Uh not only did they have to force their hand, but they told the legislature they, they had to lay off the initiative for two years. They couldn't touch it uh, because uh, it's understood with an initiative that you're pushing them to do something they don't want to do. And so you got to give it a little room to breathe uh, okay. before they just kill it.
0: You know, that <clears throat> I can see how, um, I actually, I didn't know that they put in the policy that they couldn't touch it for two years. And, you know, that, that I can imagine how that actually makes everything that much more challenging because not only are, are the people pressuring the legislators to do something that they were not necessarily ready to do or at the very least didn't have the inertia for, but now suddenly the legislators have to get educated on best practices and how they want to go about it, maybe not begrudging but at least on topics that they were not already educated on I mean we saw that um, uh, both in Colorado and Washington as far as um, how they're interacting with patients and then recently last legislative session in Washington with the passing of 5052 which was erroneously called the you know the Patient Protection Act which actually kind of gutted most of the patients' rights and and we found that you know so many of the legislators were being educated by the commercial cannabis lobbyists. I think that that may have may, may be less likely in states where it's not passed by initiative, where the uh, Congress folks have got the ability to, to do their homework in advance first.
1: Well, you know I kind of agree with you there. Uh, I think that's one of the things that we're learning through the cannabis situation is how, in fact, our legislators are educated. And and the fact is they're educated usually by industry and particular special interests. So once the initiative was passed, there was a period of interest formation, right, in the cannabis industry that kind of gathered the the ones who were a little more organized and had a little more uh, access. In other words, they, they tapped into you know, folks who were, who were a little more politically and economically included already and just used those channels, then the legislators got educated to the extent they wanted to be educated on and way more than they wanted to. I mean, it's 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 they still don't want to be educated, Shango. The, what they want to know is what's the fiscal note? How much is this going to cost and how much is it going to bring in? And that's about the extent of what they want to know about it. Mm. And so this is kind of the, um, the danger of it going forward uh, that... This will be the primary education that they will receive and the primary mode in which they will operate and, uh, and, uh, and change laws. I think it's interesting the possibility that there will be more, uh, instead of initiative, but legislative um, cannabis reforms. We can see that this has happened with medical marijuana in particular already. Obviously, we're probably a long ways off from a recreational law that's uh, passed by a legislator, legislature. Uh, unless California happens to, you know, not pass uh, uh, the AMA Act, uh, which it looks like they they will, but it's 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 up in the air. Um, and so, so it's really, you know, who are the stakeholders really that are kind of forcing legislators to make a decision, really, uh, and that's really what it comes down to. Is they're going to make a decision. Uh, Most legislators who are not the primary sponsors of the bill or otherwise part of some sort of political calculus are being told by their party how to vote, basically. So they're still not educated, Shango. Uh, There's a lot more work to be done to actually educate them on anything more than really the fiscal note.
0: So let's let's look at this from the perspective of states that have not <clears throat> passed uh, recreational or adult use laws yet. Because, you know, so far we've talked about, um, you know, Alaska and Oregon and Washington and Colorado, and we're all in the process of sorting this out and figuring out how to make this work for everybody. But there are other states that are early enough in the process that they can take actions to educate their policymakers so that, you know, A, maybe they get it right the first time, or at least closer to the right, closer to right, and and B they can involve the, the the rule makers in a way where they see the bigger picture because you know in all of the states that have passed um, laws already it, it seems that the gaps are not that the people or the legislators are are bad it's just that they're underinformed. What would you recommend uh, for folks in states that have not passed laws yet on how they can get ahead of this and educate their regulators? Um, so that they can, you know, get something passed from the beginning that tends to work better?
1: Oh, man. Well, I'd say that um, they really have to understand that they would have to pull off feats of organization that we have never seen from the cannabis community. Hmm. Uh, And and I want to be very serious about that. Uh, Our cannabis community consists of a lot of people who, as I noted earlier, are not already politically and economically included in, in, in the system. Uh, their interests, their militant interests in, in cannabis in particular, uh, do not translate well uh, in conversation with legislators. Uh, and honestly, there's a reason for that. And it's not just because it's about cannabis. It's because they're not part of the system. Uh, it could be you know, tangentially related to the fact that they consume cannabis or have radically different beliefs about uh, punishment in society. But these are minority beliefs, and the only way for a minority to become powerful is to get extremely organized. And i got to say, again, the cannabis community has never pulled it off, really. Uh, even in California for at, at the statewide level, uh, that initiative that Dennis Perron was running was not going to succeed until Ethan Nadelman came in with DPA money and, uh, you know, actually, you know, Changed uh, the language a little bit, and also got the money out there for the signatures. So, for a law to work, our entire culture has to change. Shango, it's got to change from the bottom up. Uh, there has to be more tolerance of, I think, dissident beliefs. Uh, you know, dissident beliefs that are founded on evidence, in particular, that can be presented logically and isn't as in the interests of the people who otherwise don't really care.
0: You know, there's a lot of depressing ideas in that, honestly. But it, it kind of reminds me of that, that, that um, statement they say: "Oh, you have, you go to war with the army you have." You know, And it's like, ah. well, you know, we may want our cannabis scene to get more organized and raise more money and 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 be be deeper in our experience. But this is all happening now, and so um, even though it's going to be messy and chaotic, um, hopefully, the more states that legalize, the better we're all going to get at it, and, uh, and and we can get smoother with implementation as we go so uh, let's go ahead and take our first short break Uh, you are listening to shaping fire and we're talking with dominic corva as a business owner you are incredibly busy in reality you are responsible for everything your company does you have so many responsibilities every single day that often you just don't have the time to really dig into something as deeply as you'd like You know there is more that you could do to reach out to new customers and to encourage loyalty in the customers you already have, but you certainly don't have the time and you're not ready to hire someone full-time for that role either. For you, I recommend Blunt Branding. Blunt Branding principles Kirsten Nelson and Anthony Garcia are focused on improving your bottom line. You know, most marketing firms are excited to make your logo, packaging, and website very pretty, but they leave responsibility for improving your bottom line up to you. They don't want that kind of responsibility. But that is pretty much the most important part of marketing, right? Kirsten and Anthony will help you engage new customers, funnel them to your point of sale, and keep them coming back to you and telling their friends. No doubt, this is a paid commercial spot, but that does not mean they bought my opinion. I've worked with Blunt Branding on three projects now for various clients, and every single time they have done more than they have promised and over-delivered on results. I love how they generate new revenue and focus on that as the goal instead of just making me a pretty logo. Similarly, every friend I've referred them to has come back to thank me, and that just does not happen every day. So grab a pen and paper because the website address is coming. If you want someone to implement marketing programs that feed your bottom line, give Blunt Branding a call. They will share proven techniques to increase your audience and generate sales while using cutting-edge technology in the background that make all of this easy, automatic, and trackable. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash to find out more. You can also click the link in our weekly newsletter. Blunt Branding marketing that makes you money. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Los, and our guest this week is Dr. Dominic Korova of the Center for the Study of Cannabis and Social Policy. So, Dominic, before the break, we were talking about the level that legislators were educated at, and, and your position was pretty much they know enough to know how to collect taxes and they want to know how much tax money they're gonna get so that they can add that to the kitty. And you know the impact of that is a is an incomplete legalization um, because while people are allowed to purchase cannabis at stores and commercial entities with licenses are allowed to grow it. You know, we don't have uh, decent public token laws in most of the states. Uh, the home grow numbers are very low. That that creates a situation where people um, need to bring their grows indoors to be able to, you know, get it grow enough for themselves. And and in some states like Washington don't even have home grow. So it's, it's really frustrating, folks, that, that it feels like we have legalization, but we don't really because it's, it was only part Partial, You know, considering the fact that that we are making something legal that has been historically taboo for so long, you know, as someone who studies policy, do you think that this is what we should expect? I mean, is it it too much for us to expect to get full legalization right off the bat because everybody's all freaked out that it's legal at all?
1: Yeah, well, uh, there's two things there. I'm going to start with the fact that really, of course, we are, you know, Legalization basically means taxation and regulation, and it refers specifically to a commodity, really. Uh, legalization is about the commodity. It's about the plant as a commodity. It's something you exchange money for in society. Uh, that's very different from legalizing you know, a culture or a people uh, who tend to use that plant, uh, but they themselves are not viewed as terribly responsible, desirable citizens in society. So hence the objection to home-growing, Hence the objection to public toking and so forth. But the, the good news is, point number two, is that this does actually hit uh, the state in its revenue basket, basically, especially the public smoking or event smoking. Uh, you know, the homegrown may be a little less so, uh, but certainly I believe that there's plenty of incentive for uh, the case to be made to lawmakers that you increase tourism that you, uh, you know, increase opportunities for folks to make money, op- increase opportunities to collect taxes and so forth by allowing for events, uh, by allowing for, uh, you know, the, the cannabis cafe, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. So, do you think that it's just a matter of time
0: then that, that you know the legislators are putting themselves on enough of a line to allow legal cannabis to exist? Period. And so, after people get used to to what's happened so far, then they're going to move more into you know social you know public social toking places and increased homegrown things like that, where
1: we're just you know baby stepping it. Well, it's going to depend on lobbyists, really. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's really – it's not about them getting used to anything. It's about essentially the priorities of the trade organizations that uh, are learning to use lobbyists, uh, maybe a little bit better than they used to for many of them. Some of them already were pretty good at it. But uh, that's common ground for all of them, uh, no matter which lobbyists we're talking about. Uh, I think that it – you know, that that is a little higher on the priority, Uh Homegrown, less so in Washington states. Uh, I think that it will probably come around uh, a little bit more by osmosis and a little bit more because, you know, every other state is going to have a homegrown, even if it's restrictive.
0: So as far as like who those lobbyist folks are, um, you know, would you say that in most of the states you've got one or two or maybe three pro commercial lobbyist groups and then maybe one or two kind of underfunded patient groups and then while there's certainly a lot of law enforcement that are in favor of of cannabis reform you know you you've got usually a law enforcement lobby that's trying to fight it and maybe a concerned parents and religious organization i mean do they tend to fall in these same flavors in every state
1: no, definitely not. Definitely hmm. not. I mean, take a look at California alone. You know, uh, the makers of fentanyl, you know, are, are funding the you no know, on the on the proposition to two and uh, a half million dollars. It's pharmaceutical corporation, right? Um, you have like way, way more and bigger interests in California. Uh, it's it's calculus, you know, calculus four, you know, as opposed to you know algebra two yeah. in <laughs> Washington. Uh, in terms of the the various interests, how big they are. Uh, how widespread they are and how much money there are, and as well as how many lobbyists there are. Certainly the distributors have a lobbyist in California in a way that distributors don't have a lobbyist in Washington at this point, uh, not not their own uh, particular special interests. Uh, um, you have much bigger and more powerful dispensaries in certain areas of the state, uh, which are on their own quite distinct in their interests from the producers and processors. Uh, as opposed to here, where they all kind of like grew up a little bit together because we reinvented the wheel. Um, So California is very different. Uh, Other states, it will be a little bit more, you know, uh, more like you described probably, but California is just the big whale. You know, it's what it does affects so much of, of the market nationally, even if it's just the California state consumption market, which obviously it's not, that uh, it will have a, a bit more of a distorting effect, I think, on, uh, on what the other interests have at their disposal in terms of arguments.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, what's going on in, in California now, their lobbyist groups have had a lot more runway than Colorado and Washington had because, like you said, we reinvented the wheel. We, we started from nothing, so everyone was just trying to get up to speed to figure out what the hell was going on to begin with. But California not only has got a long cannabis history, but they've been able to watch policy implementation in the other states, and so now people are taking their positions earlier and with more money. So, all right, so let's talk about California. You know, California is like the eighth largest economy in the world, and and for better or for worse, it does look like uh, the Adult Use Marijuana Act is going to pass, and, you know, the passing of that law in California is probably going to hit the industry like a tsunami. You know, what, what impact do you see that having on the national conversation, and, and maybe even more importantly, on the cannabis market itself?
1: Well, let me just say that... Really, it was the you know reformation of California's Prop Two Fifteen just a year or two ago that has already set off the tsunami you describe, because that, which was legislatively driven uh, and also connected with Gavin Newsom's uh, entrepreneurial policy approach to uh, cannabis politics, uh, that set sort of a, a statewide set of basic conditions for jurisdictions to license and register the cannabis market per se. Now the first two years of it, it really was about and is about just kind of like getting your getting your paperwork in. Now the adult use of marijuana act obviously, you know, when it passes will have another set of things, but they're not going to be replacing this very recently created medical marijuana thing. They're going to be intersecting with it in terms of the rulemaking, the regulations, and so forth. So the tsunami's already started, but also the full how long it takes for all of this to happen. I think that, uh, you know, the rules are set through like 2023 in terms of when things happen, uh, in terms of permitting and, and so forth. So you're you're going to be looking at a few years of, uh, you know, continued volatile growth in California, uh, which, of course, you know, already had the black market tsunami going. So uh, I think the, there's a lot of attention being fo- focused on the initiative. It is significant. Uh, it will bring, I think, new opportunities for new uh, probably investment uh, players to uh, participate uh, but otherwise, will be a continuation of what we've been going. Go, it's been going on since 1970s in California. You know, mm-hmm. the green rush has never stopped in California. It's it started in the 70s and has never stopped. And uh, you know, every year it's gotten bigger. When I arrived in Southern Humboldt five years ago, everybody thought, "Wow, it's just blown up. It's so huge. All these strangers are coming here. It's crazy." I just saw you know a note on a, a recent news article in Humboldt. That was talking as though really in the last five years is when it's really blown up, and now it's gotten out of control and so forth. And I was already hearing that five years ago, and then I realized, well, probably five years before that, people were saying that as well. Uh, And certainly the numbers seem to bear out in terms of the California market economy. Do you think that
0: once California does pass adult use, that it's just going to increase – Uh, investor confidence so that there's just going to be all of these new uh, investment opportunities and laws passed in other states because providing like
1: california is like a tipping point absolutely absolutely you know i mean people talk about all states as though they're equal like when we get to half the states with uh, these laws then congress will have to do something well it's it's not half the states it's the right states really uh you know uh, and and california is an incredibly economically powerful state uh, its politicians will be, you know, uh, its national politicians are connected from their to the state and local politicians and the political party machines. They will then be able to carry that to Congress in a much more confident manner. Gavin Newsom has really blazed a trail in terms of, uh, you know, approaching cannabis like, uh, you know, gay marriage in terms of political capital. So he, he got ahead of the other politicians. He realized, you know, this is the way society is going. This is the way, you know, the public is viewing things now. And you know what? Like, I can get support out of it, as opposed to it being a third rail that nobody can touch. But you're right, certainly the, um, the nationalization and internationalization of investments into uh, the cannabis industry alone, that California's situation is going to open up, that will probably be the biggest reverberator in terms of how the messages get national
0: you know they haven't even voted yet and you can already feel it everywhere you can feel people you know expecting it to pass and therefore they're jumping in early and getting their their ducks in a row and getting their money raised and making their contacts you can just feel it's like a, a whole bunch of cars that are lined up at a at a starting gate and they're all rah, rah, revving their engines and burning oil and all ready for it to pass in november to to make the whole thing a reality it's um it's actually rather enormous and startling actually
1: yeah, but I mean, I, I feel like those engines have been re- revving for a little while now uh, You know, um, one of the interesting things that I think California the, the biggest thing, I think, for California, at least Northern California Is that I think that we're going to see the opening up really of of more, um, of more liberal zoning laws, actually And I don't know if you understand this, but certainly like in the Bay Area Uh, You know, why don't they have hundreds of dispensaries in the Bay Area? Well, because, you know, over the last 10, 15 years, they reacted to medical marijuana by almost immediately, you know, making it impossible for there to be a location for folks to sell it in a dispensary. It's not that they made it, they outlawed it, they zoned it out. And I think that this process will allow for the zoning in of properties, especially of retail stores, because it is kind of ridiculous that the Bay Area has actually so few uh, retail cannabis spots uh, compared to you know Southern California or l a for example, and probably the highest capita consumption of cannabis uh, you know in the country uh, with most of that you know I think going through the black market
0: hmm. you know it 's interesting to think about that because um, you know you 're all like you know this has already been happening for some time, but it seems like the the the, the industry as a whole um, has been held back by the fact that they haven't really gotten the full legal green light, which tends to keep all of this, you know, legal capital um, on the sidelines. And so, while California has obviously had this this rolling green rush since the '70s, it, there were there were natural. You know, barriers to entry simply because um, your money wasn't necessarily safe, and so a lot of the legal money uh, found it as too high of risk. And now suddenly, that's all going to be open, and there's going to be this gushing influx of new and in- in new investment capital. Um, it should be very interesting to see um, how much um, you know repetition in the market there is. I, I-, I would imagine that there's probably going to be this huge swelling in the market. And then you know, probably a bubble and then a shaking out of you know, secondary and tertiary players that just don't have it in them to hang in what's going to be such a competitive
1: market. Yeah, but so much of California is already oriented outside the state anyway. Um, certainly the newer investors that are trying to capture you know, California state consumption – are probably are not thinking about this the right way. You want to use California to jump into the national market, not to use California to jump into the California market. Uh, so right now, the issue is that legalization is still about California and California's market. Uh, and now, you know, what, what AMA allows you to do is write maybe a business plan with a little more confidence over a longer time frame, because, you know, you don't have an initiative coming up every year as a possibility to change things. You know, uh, now you kind of have a, a little bit longer sight and can see how it's going to open up. You can identify, you know, which parts of California are particularly ripe for, let's call it what it is, you know, transitioning from, you know, black markets oversupply into, uh, you know, white market regulated channels. And, you know, what's going to hold that up is going to be taxes, you know, it's, it's still going to be more expensive, uh, and in California, uh, you know, a lot more expensive than the black market, which is absolutely full of it, and the investors are not, you know, uh, pouring their money into that. Um, they want to, you know, transform or capture as much of the black market as they can, and they will be running straight into the of policymakers to, to put a huge tax on it, a series of huge taxes, local, state, county. Uh they're starting out lower than, than we are. Obviously ours is probably um you know at thirty-four percent. I don't think anybody else can be starting with that, but our thirty-four is another nine plus you know whatever else people put on it. Uh I think we're gonna be starting at seventeen in California probably, um uh at the state, and then you're gonna get, you know, uh what is there in the Bay Area? I think there's already a five percent in Oakland, something like that. Um so I don't know. You know, the investor money has to go towards something very concrete with a business plan that they understand already. And I believe that the money really should be going into probably branding uh, because that's the first thing that gets to jump state lines. Uh, What they want to do is probably gobble up the smaller actors, uh, buy them out or take their brand and, uh, you know, put it on steroids, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, uh, really ready it for, you know, something bigger than the California market.
0: I think that's really insightful when you say that California more than being its own market interest is actually just the the gateway if you will to the rest of the national market it's 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 it's, it's- you know, Since there is not federal legalization yet, it's kind of like the, uh, the, the minor leagues where everybody is getting trained and ready for federal normalization when then they can then roll out to the rest of the company. That makes a lot of sense. Hey, we need to take another short break. We'll be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. Look inside this crystal ball with me for a moment. I'm looking just a couple months into the future. I'm seeing the future of the Shaping Fire podcast. The show sure has grown. I've continued to interview fascinating cannabis industry luminaries, and our audience has gotten huge. It has doubled and redoubled and doubled again. There are high fives all around the Shaping Fire World Headquarters. New listeners are subscribing every day and begin to listen to the back catalog of all the great interviews there. And that is where the Shaping Fire audience ...learns about your company. You were incredibly smart today to become an early adopter... ...and place a commercial in Shaping Fire's early episodes. If you become an advertiser on the Shaping Fire podcast now, today... ...you are going to pay a fraction of the cost we'll be asking in just two months. And yet, all the audience that listens to our back catalog of interviews... ...will hear about your company again and again. It's a great deal for you. Pay a small amount now because the show is so new... But take advantage of the huge listening audience we will have forever. This crystal ball is not a smoke dream. Do yourself a solid and contact us today for rates on podcast and newsletter advertising. Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out more. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Loos, and our guest this week is Dr. Dominic Korva of the Center for the Study of Cannabis and Social Policy. So before the break, Dominic, you know, we were talking about how important California was because it's the eighth largest economy in the world and how even more than just, uh, you know, wanting to open business there for its own sake, because California is such a big market, of how it's actually a gateway to the rest of the nation um, once uh, federal legalization takes place. And, you know, know, folks who are looking ahead on how their businesses are going to evolve over, say, the next 10 years, they have to be... Aware of the possibility of international players as well, because you know once we get to the point that that product can move across state lines, so someone might be able to produce it in in California or Texas and then ship it to you know Connecticut or 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 Colorado or Arkansas or whatever. Once those borders are sorted out, you know that there's going to be people pushing to be able to start um, bringing in product internationally, and you know people places. Like Mexico and Uruguay are already thinking about, you know, let's grow outdoor cannabis here, let's convert it into oil, and let's ship that to the United States. You know, what do you think of is the likelihood that that will be an aggressive timeline that will happen rather quickly because, you know, there's a lot of folks who are, are planning on producing cannabis oil in the U S but if suddenly Mexican cannabis oil is coming in, you know, to be used in edibles and all, you know, this huge market, you know, that's going to just crush the prices here. How do, what do you see in your crystal ball as far as that's concerned?
1: Well, it's already happening with CBD, uh you know in terms of international lines and so forth it's against the law but the policy seems to be a little alone uh i was contacted recently by some cbd company that you know opened up in seattle and uh i don't know what they thought i did but uh you know they wanted me to you know get some advertising from them or something like that but basically you know i was like well you know first of all I can't do that. We're a federal nonprofit, 501c3, and we don't do, you know, we don't buy or sell cannabis. Uh, you know, we're a research service. Uh, but the other thing is obviously the, the, the international hemp oil scene, you know, a lot of it was in China, probably still is, but a lot of it is now coming from Europe, uh, from German hemp and so forth. And it's being, you know, shipped absolutely across international lines. It's being shipped Uh, products that aren't approved by the FDA, it's being shipped, um, powder, crystals, and so forth. Uh, So that's one thing. It's already happening. It's happening especially through CBD. However, uh, you're right. Uh, You know, you got to look at other countries that are going to be willing to export and able to export to other countries before they're able to export to the United States. So Colombia, right off the bat, is planning on essentially, you know, treating cannabis like coca in terms of medical cannabis and exporting it to the rest of Latin America, like Bolivia and Peru export certainly coca leaves to other parts of Latin America. So, uh, you know, Colombia is already on that in Latin America. We'll see what happens elsewhere elsewhere in South Asia, you know, in India, certainly there's a, uh, <laughs> Dr. Sunil Agarwal. You have to ask him a little bit more about that, but, uh, you know, um, the South Asian markets will cross borders, although you've got the Philippines right there, and they're ready to kill anybody with who's, uh, you know, accused of being a drug dealer right now. So uh, you have some weird things going on. I, I think that with the United States, it, it is going to be a while uh, before it's able to cross state lines, and that actually might put us behind in terms of our ability to export our own product because Colombia will have had practice, maybe India will have had practice, and so forth. But the way things work here, um, you got to look at our trade agreements, actually. And it'll be interesting. (laughs) The moment you start seeing cannabis, medical cannabis, or otherwise start to be written into trade agreements is when you start to get it across the border. So we have NAFTA, right? We have TPP. We have CAFTA. Uh, We have, you know, actually an interlocking you know, Byzantine maze of trade agreements all over the world, the result of the last uh, 30 years of globalization. Uh, and, you know, those things, I think they change slower uh, than uh, our drug policy laws here. So that's one thing that I would, I would say is that we're going to develop our own internal, you know, possibly export market, maybe even we'll start to get, if, the, if Congress doesn't act after California does, maybe we'll start to get like a West Coast trade zone for cannabis or something like that uh, that uh, starts to open up. But it's going to be in fits and starts. It's it's really uh, it's a little unpredictable, but certainly I don't think it's happening anytime soon. Uh, I think it's happening outside of our country very soon. I think Colombia is going to be doing it right away. Um, but uh, not to the United States, but to other Latin American countries.
0: Wow, there's so many, there's so much to chew on there. I mean, for speculation, that seems to suggest that, you know, American investment capital that wants to get involved with cannabis might be better informed um, by uh, investing in the third world since they're going to be moving faster because they've got a smaller regulatory structure and perhaps um, less... Uh, trade agreements to worry about. So that's number one. Number two, it's interesting to consider that, um, you know, the the various, uh, uh, you know, protectionist ways that the United States Goes about things could actually put us in the back seat as far as international trade on cannabis, and then I guess the, the idea that folks are already doing it now—you uh, know, bringing bringing you know uh, crystallized CBD from hemp in from from China and everything—really shows how uh, often policy can be made by selective enforcement because it's already illegal to do that, but for the time being, they don't seem to be. Um, enforcing against it which suddenly default makes it pseudo legal
1: yeah it's a weird kind of version of you know our own you know medical cannabis laws from years ago uh this default kind of like you know policy of a black enforcement or lower priority of uh, enforcement um which opens things up you know uh it would be very difficult now to i think you know take down all the people who are importing hemp products in terms of you know, international financial capital investing, uh, well, I'll tell you exactly how that works, Shango. It's 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 about real estate. So international financial capital, especially when it comes to agricultural products, is about real estate. It's about buying the land. It's not about making money off of these very, very cheap, perishable, you know, agricultural commodities. And, uh, I, you know, Latin America is not going to be treating, you know, cannabis as anything other than an agricultural commodity, medical one, sure. But, Uh, You know, it's not going to be an, you know, added value industrial product or anything like that. So I think that what you got to look at is, you know, where people buy property, uh, but also distribution, uh, international distribution. I also think that that's something we didn't touch on in California. It's a very important uh, part of the scene is that folks who want to make a bundle off of cannabis distribution is probably going to be huge. Uh, uh, It didn't kind of happen that way in Washington. Uh, but that's one of the ways in which California is going to show uh, these other little states, essentially with the, the little cannabis markets how it's done. Um, I do believe that distributors are going to play a huge role, uh, especially because of the way we have all these various compliance issues with you know the tracking of cannabis and we'll continue to do so for the foreseeable future. So the, that intersection of tracking and distribution, is going to be huge. And if you look at international financial capital, look at where it buys land so so before we go
0: too far away around the uh, away from the international topic, um, you know it, I think this is an important point to point out for folks who are considering getting you know processing licenses in their own state because uh, folks when they're when they 're gauging their risk they 're thinking, okay, well, you know we know that the marijuana is going to sell, and we know that there's going to be brands from our state and so since we know that the you know the, essentially the sales cycle for cannabis at the beginning is, do you have weed? Yes, sold, right? That, that a lot of people jump in just believing that if they can get the license, if they can set up their business, if they can just stay in business and find enough capital, that that their product is guaranteed to sell. And, and even if it's going to be a decade before um, you know, any kind of cannabis oil is going to be imported from, say, Mexico, you know, 10 years is not a long time when investors a half million dollars in setting up a, a processing company at the state level. And I think that um, I think that it's a good time to remind folks to gauge their risk and not get in over their heads because you know this this cascade of one tsunami after another and then the law changes and now suddenly you know the potential for state to t- state transfer and then international. It's going to be a bucking bronco ride for you know a good twenty years, and people should make sure that they're ready for that before they invest their retirement capital into it.
1: For sure, for sure. But I, I really don't think that there's uh, as much of that uh, you know retirement capital kind of investment uh, that's happening. Um, a lot of the startups, certainly for our states, were were a little more like that. But, you know, what investment capital likes to do is merge and acquire. Uh, So they'll be going around looking for failing businesses. They make people an offer they can't refuse. And then they build their, uh, you know, uh, portfolio essentially of, uh, you know, real estate and production sites uh, that are going to network together. And that's the way for the big guys. And I think that's also the way for the smaller guys, uh, the folks who actually want to hang in there and be a part of this instead of build it up and sell it. Uh, which is a common entrepreneurial, uh, you know, uh, notion, uh, is that they are going to have to, you know, form cooperative enterprises of some sort. You know that uh, if you have a horizontal merger, merging going on, as opposed to vertical merging, then you're going to be able to, I think, uh, be a little more resilient than if you if you just insist on sticking it out on your own.
0: You know, that's a really good point. Just because, you know, I've talked to so many folks in Washington and Colorado and Oregon uh, who have you know started their mom and pop businesses with the intention of going national, that doesn't mean that's how it's going to be going forward. That's a really good point because now that, um, you know, uh, traditional investment capital is feeling more – uh, confident and and the risk is decreasing um we're going to see more businesses taken over by acquisition and by you know more traditional uh capital sources where it's not just going to be mom and pops that then you know get elevated to the big leagues and um and and and, and a lot of that capital is used to a higher amount of risk than you know me losing my retirement capital because I I gave it to my uncle, you know, or something like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Yeah, sure. For sure. Well, I mean, when it comes down to it, uh, a a lot of the, I don't know, a lot of the investment when it comes down to it, I think in the 502 system started with $250. Uh, and everybody who actually paid that 250 bucks and got an application for something in that little 30 day window, uh, that we did not know would be pretty much the only window where that could happen, uh, you know, those licenses, be- licenses became commodities. They became commodities when, even if they're failing, they became commodities. If, you know, you've lost everything, you can still sell that license, basically. So, uh, you know, the window for investment in the system for the smaller folks, I think that was it, to be honest, uh, you know, in, in terms of the direct handling uh it's going to be tough to break into retail when they open up new retail windows. The state's going to want the same retailers. They're going to want people who've proven that it's uh, been done. They're going to want people from the list they already have. Uh, so it's very interesting.
0: Uh, In a lot of ways, that dynamic is the same as the New York taxi token, you know, where you know, you're huh. buying and selling these for you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars or whatever um, because they're a limited. They've, they've become a commodity themselves. Right.
1: That's right. That's exactly right. Limited edition, scarce resource.
0: Yeah. Right on. Well, cool. Well, very good, Dominic. I think that that's where we're going to stop for today. Thanks for so much for being on the show and making time.
1: You're quite welcome, Shango. It's my pleasure every time. Dr. Dominic Korva is
0: executive director of the Center for the Study of Cannabis and Social Policy. You can find out more about CASP at cannabisandsocialpolicy.org. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and in the podcast section of the Apple iTunes Store. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insight into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of this podcast as well. For information on me and where I'll be speaking, you can check out shangolos.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.